Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your way acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time. I've often said that means making the most of the time. Because the days are evil. And we know that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves beneath the mighty hand of God, that he may promote you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. This morning, as we continue our honoring, our celebration, our focus on Veterans Day and recognition of those who have served, we take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. And our spiritual preparation really is just a few seconds. It's an opportunity for you to have a conversation with God the Father. And it's an opportunity for confession of sins. If someone got the last cookie or uh, has uh, or your favorite snack wasn't there, uh, we'll work harder next time. But this is going to have to be our stopgap measure right now. That's trying to take care of any personal sins you might have. So you have an opportunity, seriously, to confess sins, and those sins are always confessed privately, individually, and directly to God the Father. Your sins as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have all, the guilt of them has all been resolved on the cross. And so it's simply a matter when you now commit a sin to confess it. And that's why uh, we take just a few seconds because we know there's just very few of them to be confessed. And it only takes just a second or two. So you now have the privacy to bow your heads and close your eyes. Take a few seconds for confession of sins or just preparation to study the word of God. And then I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your absolutely marvelous provisions, and they come on a daily basis. They come whether we earn them or deserve them. And of course, Father, we're thankful. We're so thankful for your first great gift, that great gift of salvation that came by way of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're also thankful for this nation, the nation that does have a rich military history, a nation that has built that military history, Father, on a spiritual heritage. And we're thankful that we have today the opportunity to study the Word of God. We're thankful also that we have the opportunity to remember and to honor those who have served and have provided us with freedom through military victory. Father, we ask your blessing on them. We certainly ask your blessing specifically on those who are from this congregation, who are away from home and serving. And we thank Father of John Wilkerson, Nathan Waterhouse, and also Father Pete Todson. We're thankful for the uh, protecting hand that you have given them. We're thankful, Father, for the skill that you are also providing them. And we pray, Father, that we may be 
a source of encouragement to them. Help us to remember them in prayer on a daily basis. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we started a remembrance of Veterans Day. And for those who may not have been here, we went through the history of Veterans Day, starting with Armistice Day, it being called Armistice Day and being designated that in our history after World War One. World War One at the conclusion of the hostilities of that war, as Hal said, and as he also said, about now, all those many years ago, people were coming out of the trenches and out of their foxholes, and they were spilling into no man's land. And as I reported to you, as uh, then Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was flying his Spad 1 uh, biplane above the trenches out in no man's land, he watched as slowly the forces that had been fighting each other slowly came out of the trenches and began to merge between no man's land, an area where previously no one could walk without being shot or shelled. But now they realized that this horrible war, and for those who think that those in the military uh, enjoy war or look forward to it, they don't. It's because the horrors of war are so much closer to them. And there are those, of course, who have different thoughts and different feelings, but for the most part, uh, they're not praying for war or wishing for war. Now, they may very well be like a surgeon who has been trained to remove brain tumors. They're not praying for someone to have a brain tumor, but if someone has a brain tumor, they want to be there. They want to be the ones to engage. And so very often, well-trained military are that way. If there's action, they want to march to the beat of the drum. They want to be there. But that doesn't mean that that's because they enjoy it. But we saw that on uh, November the 11th of 1918, the 11th hour of that 11th day, the armistice was signed. It was a, a cessation of hostilities at that time. Then later on, the actual peace treaty was signed. And we saw the development of the, of the day, Armistice Day. And then finally, uh, what we have today, Veterans Day. And it's uh, a wonderful thing because uh, all along the way, until maybe uh, to a certain extent here uh, recently where we have some great dissension, but we have realized the importance of honoring those who are serving. And it's important that we have a day. It's not so important that we only do it on one day. That's not the idea. We should remember them, pray for them, honor them, thank them, those who have served every chance we get. But it is important for the nation to remember, have a day where we say, let's stop everything else and let's remember those who have served. And I think it's a wonderful idea to find a ceremony, whether it's down at Quantico. I know that they have a ceremony there. We have a, cer a ceremony over at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, and I'm sure there are other bases that have them as well. It's important to take that time. So much of our time now on those holidays is me time. And 
uh, time that we have set aside to do something for ourselves, and we simply forget the, uh, the purpose of the day. But it truly is a day for us to honor, to love, uh, to remember, and to cherish the thoughts and the memories of those who have served and those who are serving. Um, I know that one of the more enjoyable things that some of us do, because we do live close to Arlington National Cemetery, is to go into the cemetery and maybe pick one or two people whose uh, gravestones will be significant to you. I mentioned this morning Eddie Rickenbacker. He's buried in Arlington Cemetery. Uh, there are others who are buried there. And to find the section in which they're buried and then find the number on the, the stone, the tombstone, the gravestone, and sometimes walk those lines. And there's many names there that you don't recognize. But saying the names, reading the dates, is honoring them. And we can do that. That's something that we can do. And in doing that, it brings back the... Uh, the memories, or at least the historical uh, memory of what has occurred, what's happened. And now there's a section in Arlington National Cemetery where many new stones are being posted, established. Many graves that have yet to have grass grown on them. And that's a place where you can stop. And there's very often a family member who is there. Uh, and... Often they wish to be just left alone in their, uh, their thoughts, but sometimes a thank you to them is very appropriate. And so uh, we have that, uh, that option and that uh, opportunity. The other day I was reading about the uh, Marine War Memorial, as we call it, or the Marine Memorial, the Iwo Jima Monument is what it's known to others. There are three members of those who planted that flag uh, buried in Arlington National Cemetery. One of them is buried very close to the Arlington Annex, uh, the very eastern side. Uh, another one is, is buried right in the center of the cemetery, and then another one is, is buried on the far side. And uh, it's, it's a very uh, enjoyable thing to do to try to find those stones see what's there, and then walk from one area to the next down the drives, whether it's Pershing Drive or Patton Drive or whatever one it happens to be to the next gravestone. And so those are some of the things that we can do. And it doesn't take long. It takes you know, just a very short portion of your day. So I think it's important that we do that. I started last time uh, by reading uh, some information about Eddie Rickenbacker. And... I, ha I have uh, one or two others that I would like to read, and I uh, have more than I, we probably can share, that I can uh, read to you this morning. But we periodically think that the nation no longer, you know, from what we hear in the news media and uh, at other times, we think that maybe America has forgotten our heritage and maybe we no longer truly have a sense of uh, gratefulness or a solid underpinning of true Americana here in the United States. But I'd like to read an article about an Army staff sergeant who was killed in uh, Iraq. 
And it's really the story that is told by his sister, uh, Teresa. It starts out, the article has said, The Heart of a Grateful Nation. And it was written not by her, but by a woman by the name of Ann Bell. And it says, Disillusioned with the United States in the 1970s, a young man set out on a journey to discover America. His book, A Walk Across America, became a bestseller because it inspired uh, readers with the true spirit of America and her people. And she says, or and the uh, article or the book says, I started out searching for myself and my country and found both. Well, this is a story that is very similar to that. When the sister received information that her brother had been killed while serving the country in Iraq, amidst pain and sorrow, it says, she experienced the heart of a grateful nation that stood with her family. And here is her story. She says, I have recently discovered the America that I love. I've also found that God can bring his peace to you through people you have never met. On September 2nd, 2007, my brother, Staff Sergeant Delmar White, was killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq. This was especially hard since he had only, he had only been deployed for three weeks. The media would have us believe that all Americans are against the war and the troops that are fighting it. My family experiences prove the media wrong. The first visitation for my brother was held in Harlan, Kentucky. While we were there, we received two banners from James A. Cawood High School, where my brother had graduated almost 20 years ago. These banners were covered with messages of sympathy and thanks that were signed by both current and past teachers and students of Cawood. We also received a blanket made by the fifth grade class at Harlan Elementary. The second visitation and funeral service was held in Lexington, Kentucky. Hundreds of people who didn't even know my brother came by to pay their respects to a fallen soldier. The most amazing blessing, however, was during the most amazing blessing, however, was during the funeral procession to the National Cemetery. Along the 30-mile trip to the cemetery, we were amazed to find thousands of people lined along the road. Most were either standing in attention or had their hands over their hearts. Along the medians of the road were fire trucks and police cars. Beside them stood the firemen and the policemen standing in attention. Some were saluting. We passed a school in Jasmine County where the students were lined up outside waving flags. In the middle of this group, was uh, in the middle of this was a group holding a huge thank you sign. We then passed a business a business named R.J. Corman. The employees were all standing outside waving flags. As we drove into the cemetery, the road was lined with people. Some were crying. Even our limo driver was crying. Hopefully he wasn't. He was still able to drive straight. Witnesses, all of this brought God's peace to me. My brother did not die in vain. No, he didn't. He was not a hated soldier of war. He, had a, he was a fallen hero, and our country loved him and felt gratitude for his service. Although it was a difficult time, it was also probably one of the deepest blessings that I have ever experienced. Sitting in the car and passing this amazing support gave me the sense of peace that I have needed over the last couple of weeks. The fiber of America is held together by good, caring, wholesome people with a love for this nation. We honor the life of Staff Sergeant Delmar White. 
all of our troops that have protected and fought for this country, and the heroes that have given their lives. We pray with all our heart, God bless America. And the remarkable thing is, is that God has blessed America. God has blessed us in ways that we really do not understand. And sometimes we do pray for God's blessing without realizing that he is blessing us beyond anything that we could even imagine. It's simply that we need to see it and understand it. I also wanted to read a Marine's prayer. I've read this before. Some of you have heard it. It's a letter that a Marine wrote to his parents during World War II. So this is another one of our, we've had a World War I remembrance. We've had uh, remembrance here from uh, Iraq. And now this is uh, at least one of those we'll see from World War II. And it says on November 22nd, 1942, under the stars of an alien sky somewhere in the South Pacific, Philip Welsher, 22, of the United States Marines, breathed his last. Mother and dad and his beloved home were far away. Horrors, violence, and devastation were all around. But Phil was looking up, far beyond the stars, into the face of his Savior. Phil's last message to his mother and dad was written more than a year before his death. His Marine friends friends found it amongst his few possessions and mailed it home at once in accordance with the request found on the envelope. And this is what he wrote. Dear folks, I'm writing this letter in hopes that after my death it will be forwarded to you. My purpose in writing this is twofold. First, that you may be assured that while we are temporary temporarily separated, we know that we shall soon be joined together with Christ in the presence of God. As I write this, I am a very, I'm in very little danger. But who can tell what the morrow may bring? We simply trust God to give us the victory in temporal things as well as spiritual matters. <clears throat> as I pass on, I wish to leave behind a testimony to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> that God may be glorified in my death <clears throat> more than he was in my life. Today, knowing that I may very soon be called to give an account of myself, I can say that I am trusting only in Jesus Christ, who died as a sacrifice for my sins, that I might have, an etern- that I might have eternal life. And that is a very clear presentation of the gospel. Wonderful. He paid the price with his own precious life, and by simple faith in him, I am cleansed from all unrighteousness. I am now with Jesus. See, he's written this letter, and he knows that if it's delivered, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. He knows where he is. Notice he doesn't say, I hope, or I wish that I am. He says that he is. And those are the, that's the assurance that we have. Not only do we know that we have eternal security, that we absolutely know that we're in the hand of our Father and our Savior. But after we grow and mature in the Word of God, we not only can say that, we not only can read that verse in John, but we can have the assurance of it. And we just know that at death we will be face to face with the Lord. I am now with Jesus, and all is well with my soul. 
Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die. My second purpose in writing this letter, Dad, is that you might make the way of salvation clear to a friend to whom I have written a similar letter. Give the message as that from me. Give the message as me. Give the message as from me that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Say also that in Him shall we meet again. Dry your tears, Mom. A son has been called home where he waits to be joined by the dearest parents a boy could have. Perhaps consolation may be found in knowing that when we shall again be together, it shall be even as He promised. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. My life and the lives of my buddies have not been given in vain. We have fought and died to maintain those God-given liberties with which we have been blessed. Now, for just a little while, I would say goodbye, and God be with you till we meet again. Your loving son, Phil. And so we see, and those of us who are in the military, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, very often uh, speak to those who are surprised. Surprised that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we have a faith in God. Because for some reason they don't uh, assume that that is, uh, for some reason, possible for those in the military. You know, these hardened killers, as some might think. But they don't realize that for those who have to face, often, face eternity on a daily basis, they make a decision. And often that decision is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, some don't, but many, many do. I knew many more believers inside the military than I've ever known outside. And that's not to say that there aren't wonderful believers outside the military. Obviously, we have many in this congregation and others. But the Lord Jesus Christ and the way of salvation is known within the military. And I've often said that because of what's happening in uh, Afghanistan and in Iraq, and Iraq, and it's not happening necessarily the way that we would uh, prefer to see some things happening, but there are more prayers going up from those locations, the sands of Iraq, the hills and the mountains of Afghanistan, than have probably ascended in decades. And it's going up because there are military personnel there praying on a daily basis, and we need to pray for them. <clears throat> I would like to uh, cover at least one more story here, and this one happens to be a naval story. Um, last week we talked about uh, Lieutenant Murphy, who was a SEAL who received the Medal of Honor. But let me try to uh, quickly summarize or at least read you some of the thoughts here of another gentleman who served during World War II and because of his service, another, it's another reason why we have freedom today. And this gentleman, Admiral, he became a Rear Admiral, Eugene B. Flucky, commanded submarine attacks on Japanese shipping. So there's a submariner, or as my brother doesn't like me to... Yeah, submariner, it's not submariner. My younger brother was uh, a, sub, a submariner, and every time I called him a submariner, he said, what? 
What's that? So, submariner. Rear Admiral Eugene B. Fluckey, one of the greatest naval heroes of World War II, who was awarded the Medal of Honor and four Navy crosses for his daring submarine attacks on Japanese shipping, died June the 28th, and this occurred in June of this year, 2007. He was 93. My father is 92, and I have to keep remembering that the World War II generation is being called home one after the other. As a matter of fact, it's really not one after the other. They're being called home in uh, detachments. And uh, I have to call Dad periodically and, and continue to remember to, to uh, maintain a close relationship, as he is, again, 92. He was born and raised in Washington, pioneer of the submarine warfare, and a highly decorated veteran. In 44 and 45, as commander of the USS Barb, he became a naval legend for his nighttime raids that sank dozens of enemy ships along the coast, the east coast of China. His bold forays were, com- were complicated by continual barrages from <clears throat> Japanese planes and boats and by shallow waters that often forced him to bring his submarine to the surface. And so that's the dangers that this uh, individual faced along with his crew. He sometimes came so close to shore that his men were able to launch sabotage missions on land. And I'll read about one of those. On January 25, 1945, Flucky embarked on what naval officials seldom given to hyperbole. I don't know about that. (laughs) Naval officials seldom given to hyperbole called virtually a suicide mission, a naval epic. We'll, We'll believe him in this this case, in this situation. In an exceptional feat of brilliant deduction and bold tracking, in the words of his Medal of Honor citation, Admiral Flucky found more than 30 Japanese vessels lurking in a concealed harbor protected by mines and rocky shoals, evading a cordon of armed escort boats. In other words, these armed escort boats are on the surface, and they're guarding the outward entrance and some of the, uh, the shoals in inward of this area, of this harbor. So avoiding them, the barb, the USS Barb, slipped into the harbor on a moonless, cloudy night. Thank, he's probably thanking the Lord for that. And scored eight direct torpedo hits on six large ships. One of them was an ammunition vessel, which exploded and caused inestimable damage by the resultant flying shells and other pyrotechnics. As uh, Flucky watched from the bridge of his submarine... The Washington Post reported in 1945, Japanese ships were erupting in the night like a nest of volcanoes. The barb then fled at high speed through uncharted rocky waters thick with fishing junks, pursued by two Japanese gunboats, and he was pursued by two Japanese gunboats. Because of the shallow water, the submarine had to stay on the surface. That's not where a submarine likes to stay. Dodging obstacles and steady fire for a full hour before reaching the safe depths of the open sea. The significance of that mission, said Navy Captain Max Duncan, who was the chief gunnery and torpedo officer of the Barb, was that we completely disrupted the entire shipping system the Japanese had developed at that point in the war. On another occasion, Admiral Flucky maneuvered his (coughs) submarine so close to the shore that he could bombard coastal installations with torpedoes and guns. On its final patrol in 1945, the Barb became the first U.S. submarine equipped with ballistic missiles. One time, Admiral Flucky selected eight commandos from his crew to paddle ashore in rubber boats and place a 55-pound bomb under, a railroad, under railroad ties on the northern Japanese island 
then called Carafuto. As the men were rowing back to the barb in the darkness, the pressure-sensitive charge blew up a 16-car troop train. It was the only time in World War II that U.S. forces set, for, set foot on the soil of Japanese homelands. Now, there may have been others. There's probably could have been others, but at least this is uh, one of those occasions, and it very well may have been the only occasion. Admiral Flucky and his 80-man crew were credited with sinking 29 ships, including an aircraft carrier, destroyer, and cruiser. He destroyed more gross tonnage than any other submarine commander. For his wartime exploits, he became known as Lucky Flucky and the Galloping Ghost of the China Coast. <laughs> Lucky Flucky and the Galloping Ghost of the China Coast. He was extraordinary, said, uh, the exe- said Rear Admiral Robert McNitt, executive officer of the Barb, and in a telephone interview, he immediately gained the full confidence of his officers and crew. He made a point of walking through the submarine several times a day. He knew everybody on board, and he knew a lot about them. Anyhow, this is another one of those individuals who has served uh, and served remarkably well, uh, and this one during World War II. A couple passages that I would like to um, read today. The first one is Second Samuel. Second Samuel. I think I've got it right this time. Second Samuel 22. <clears throat> I have more uh, illustrations and more observances for Veterans Day, but let's go to Psalm 22. Excuse me, Second Samuel 22 which also is, by the way, Psalm 18. But we're in 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. And this is at the end of David's life, we believe, fairly close to the end of his life. Uh, well, excuse me. No, this doesn't, uh, that was another psalm I was reading. This one is probably somewhere soon after he has defeated Saul. And he mentions that in what Psalm 18 has in the... Uh, uh, the, what we would call the, uh, the print above the first verse, but it's included here in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. So David wrote this to be sung. I don't know how if we can uh, sing this one sometime. Possibly not, but... On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he, David, said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. And I read this uh, passage for two reasons. First of all, this is a wonderful passage for those in the military to read and to uh, associate themselves with David, who was a warrior himself. But it's also a passage of Scripture that is good for uh, others to read who who are not in the military because it provides the same sense and the the, the the figures of speech here and the the visions the images that you receive from reading this is a, it's a wonderful psalm of assurance and here of course it's a historical document in second samuel 22 verse 3 the god of my strength in whom i will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation horn here a horn in the Old Testament can be used several ways, but it was protection. For an animal, it was protection. It was security. 
And so it can mean strength. My shield and maybe the strength of my salvation. Or a better word there would be deliverance. Because that's what David's talking about here. He's not talking about the justification. Um, the fact that he was saved by grace here. He's talking about the physical deliverance of the Lord after he had faith in God. My strong, my stronghold and my refuge. My savior, my deliverer. You delivered me from violence. I will, verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be delivered from my enemies. And I'd like to stop and, and sort of give a rubbing, running commentary. And maybe sometime I'll return to do this. But today I, I'm, I'm going to try to read as best I can through this passage. Verse 5, when the ways of death surround me. In other words, this is in combat. And the chance of death is likely. The waves, you can see this. The imagery here is wonderful. The waves of death surround me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, maybe a better translation, the grave, surrounded me. The sorrows of Sheol, of the grave, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. He is facing death. In combat here, he's facing death on a daily basis. And for those who face combat, again, this is wonderful reassurance because this is how David saw it. This is how he remembered it. This is how he honored the Lord. Seven, in my distress, in my anxiety, we might say, I called upon the Lord and called out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. Of course, David is saying this as if God is far away, but he's not. He's right here. He's with us. He's with us all the time. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one with us. So we need not cry very loud. We just need to think it. Eight. Then the earth shook and trembled. See the response of the Lord here. Then the earth shook and trembled. The fountains of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. This is the response of God in protecting his children. This is how David provides us with this imagery. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it, so hot that things catch fire. Well, this again is a figure of speech. This is all imagery, but this is a wonderful way to see God. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick, cloud, and thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. 14. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts. And he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The fountains of the earth were uncovered. And the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of his breath of his nostrils. And so we see David's description of how the Lord uh, supported him. And supplied this energy and this confidence. Verse 17. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. This danger. We've seen the waves of death. And now he's being withdrawn from these waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. From those who hate me. For they were too strong for me. David's not saying. Pounding his chest and saying. I did it. I licked him. No. They were too strong for David. 
David says that the Lord is the one who delivered him. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. So if the Lord is our support, no problem. He also brought me out into a broad place. Broad place, no longer in a tight spot. Not in a tight spot, he's in a broad place. He delivered me because he delights in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness to the clean, uh, cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Now, we're going to see a passage here where David talks about blamelessness. And let's finish that, and then we'll talk, see how he can say that. The Lord, because most of us remember some of his exploits and his escapades as king. <clears throat> the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousnesses, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Well, we know that David was not perfect. We know that he had sins, as a matter of fact. It's because the Old Testament reports the life of David that we know that people fail. Even the strongest of believers will fail. But that doesn't mean that life is over. That doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. Because we did nothing to gain our salvation except believe. And we can do nothing to lose our salvation. The salvation that God gives us is stronger than anything that we could ever do on earth. There is because, one other reason, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for the guilt of, guilt of those sins. And we're saying, if we believe that we can do something, if we can sin in such a way that we would lose the saving power of our Lord Jesus Christ, then there is a sin that we can sin, that we can commit, that is too great for God's saving work on the cross. And that is the height of arrogance. And it's just not true. Once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and this is not an invitation to now run, jump up and run screaming out of the church to commit any sin that you'd like or ever dreamed of committing, because you'll be disciplined for it. But you cannot lose your salvation. God's saving work on the cross paid for every sin that any human being will ever commit. Therefore, salvation is available to every human being, not just a few, not just a select, not just the elect. It's available to everyone. And David had committed some sins and he committed some sins that some of us would not want written about. And we certainly want that. No, wouldn't want that in pages of scripture. Don't attach my name to that, even though some of us may have committed similar sins. But once confessed, they were forgiven. Once confessed, they were forgiven. And David is called one of the strongest believers. As a matter of fact, as we go through the Old Testament, David is used as the measuring rod for other kings. And so he says that according to his righteousness, not his personal righteousness, but the righteousness that he has been given because his sins have been forgiven. Verse 26, With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. 
with a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. And again, that refers to the fact that he has righteousness. That he has the faith in God and he knows that his sins are forgiven. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will deliver the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty and you will bring them down. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord. There's this light to his path, and we've seen this before. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. This is the ability, this is the skill that he's given. Now, this isn't superhuman, but he's able, he has the, first of all, the confidence, the courage, and the ability now to do this, where before he might have been afraid. As for God, his way is perfect. His way is perfect. His plan for our life is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is a strength and power. And he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. And he sets me on high places. Verse 35. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. This is the Lord giving the skill to the individual, the warrior. Those who are in the military. You have been given me the shield of your deliverance. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarge my path under me so my feet do not slip. In other words, in these verses... God is providing him the ability to do his job in combat or wherever he is in the military. Notice his feet do not slip. He doesn't stumble. 38. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. 40. For you have armed me with strength for battle. Our strength in battle, and again, for those of of our uh, young folks who are in harm's way, our strength for battle comes from the Lord. And it can be a very fearful thing to, uh, to go into combat. It can be a fearful thing to do things much short of combat. But our strength, our strength, you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemy. The necks of my enemy. Those of you who remember in Joshua, we studied putting the foot on the necks of the enemy. This is what he's referring to. This is this subduing those who oppose him. So that I destroyed those who hate me. 40, 42. They looked, but there was none to deliver them. See, they need deliverance now. And they're going to call on God. But they don't know God. Even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. And these were the people that were more powerful than him. 44. You have also delivered me from the the strivings of my people. You have kept me from the head of you have kept me as the head of the nations. See, David recognizes here that he had sinned and Absalom rose against him. But God allowed him to remain king. Not only king, but we see that Israel was the head of the nations. 
You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. There are many people that he would um, that he would conquer. The foreigners submit to me as soon as they hear. They obey me. The foreigners fade away and come become frightened from their height and come frightened, come out frightened from their hideouts. Forty seven. The Lord lives. The Lord lives. And on a daily basis, you know, this is a very short phrase sentence, but we very often forget this, that the Lord lives and he's with us. Not only is he with us, because we very often think and try to tell ourselves, well, the Lord's right here. He's going stride for stride with me. But the remarkable thing is, is the Lord has already been down the road. He is not bound by time. The Lord has walked before us and he has provided for us. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted. The rock of my deliverance. It is God who avenges me. We don't avenge ourselves. God avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And there is one of the reasons why we sing songs. We're singing praises to God's name. We're remembering him, we're revering him, and we're giving thanks to him. 51. He is the tower of deliverance to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And David refers here, he under, David understands the Davidic covenant. David understands that God has promised him the throne of Israel and that he will someday, once more in the millennium, sit on that throne and his descendants. So David understands that the promise that the Lord has made to him, he is God's anointed and there will be other God's anointed that follow him. And it says that he shows mercy to his anointed to David and his descendants forevermore. So Psalm 18 and then also 2 Samuel 22 are the words of of David. Uh, A great psalm for those of us serving in the military. It's one that probably we should read often to gain that confidence and trust and courage. As we come to the the close of our service, I would like to read one other um, summary here. And for me, uh, quite a few years ago, I bought a book that had um, a very moving impression upon me. And it was a book that had been compiled by Reader's Digest. And it was about the POWs during the Vietnam War. And I remember reading the stories. as, uh, uh, as it, The way the book is written is it takes it day by day. It doesn't give you a story of a single POW uh, in total, but it takes it, it's a remarkable book. It's just called, I think, POW. And it takes it day by day from the very first pilot that was shot down, Alvarez, his name, until they were released. And it takes it each day, day, day at a time. And I could, I could only read a few pages at a time. There's no break. There's no break 
to say, let's talk about the past of this individual, how he grew up and what he did. I mean, that's in there. But it's every day what's happening to those who were taken as POWs. And there's a book called, uh, let me see, I think I, I've got it at home and now I've almost forgotten. It's Into the, into the, the, mouth, of the, into the mouth of the Lion, I think it is. It's in here. But this is the Lance Sijon story. The story of Lance Sijon. And I have tough time for this, and that's probably it. But it starts alone in enemy territory with no food or water and unable to walk. Captain Lance Sijon, United States Air Force, refused to give up. On the night of November the 9th, 1967, Lieutenant Colonel John Armstrong, commander of the 366th Tactical Fighter Wing, 480th Squadron, based at Da Nang, rolled his F-4 into a bomb run. The target was Bon Laboy, the Bon Laboy Fords on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos. In the back seat was 25-year-old Captain Lance Sajan, S-I-J-A-N, S-I-J-A-N, Lance Sajan, flying his 53rd combat mission. He was no stranger to the, to the uh, skies over Vietnam. Armstrong, there was a problem. It doesn't describe the problem here, but he needed to jettison his bombs. Armstrong, the pilot, Lieutenant Colonel John Armstrong, pickled, that's a, a precise military term, pickled his six bombs at 8.39 p.m. Almost immediately, the aircraft was engulfed in a ball of fire as the bombs detonated a few feet below the F-4. Neither the FAC controlling the mission, nor Armstrong's wingman saw shoots. But there was one shoot. Sijon had ejected and was drifting towards a flat-topped, heavily forced, uh, karst formation. For Sijon, recollection, recollection stopped as the 195-pound captain crashed into the towering trees. He was, by the way, a graduate of... Uh, commissioned, rather, at the Air Force Academy. And here he is now, crashing into trees in Vietnam. Sometime the next, sometime the next day, Saijon regained consciousness in a haze of pain. He had suffered a compound fracture of the left leg, a crushed right hand, head injuries, and deep lacerations. Most of his survival gear had been blown away. He tended the broken leg as best he could, then lapsed again into unconsciousness. The following morning... A flight of F-4s picked up the sound of Saijon's beeper, and a search and rescue operation got underway. Throughout the day, Saijon made contact with the rescue force, but several attempted pickups were thwarted by NVA gunners, North Vietnamese gunners. At 5 p.m., a Jolly Green chopper made it in directly over Saijon. In a desperate attempt to crawl through tangled vines to the chopper's penetrator, Saijon lost contact with the rescue force. As, as darkness fell, the search and rescue operation was called off. I mean, try crawling with a shattered left leg, uh, a useless right hand, and lacerations all over your body. Unfortunately, you didn't get to that uh, chopper's penetrator. Penetrator is something you drop down through the trees, penetrates the jungle uh, canopy, as we would call it. Uh, those who are wounded can either be placed in the... Um, uh, the receptacle that will pull them out, and that can be a dangerous thing in itself. Uh, and so this is what he was trying to do, trying to get to the uh, penetrator that was dropped from the aircraft down into the uh, the trees. 
early the next morning, the search resumed, but Cy John's radio batteries were depleted. Failing to make contact, the search and rescue team was recalled. Cy John was on his own. If he were to survive, he must make his way down the steep karst to water and an open area where he could warm the radio batteries and call in a chopper. With a crude splint on his shattered leg and only the thumb and forefinger of his right hand functioning, Cy John began the most incredible journey in the history of Air Force survival efforts. For several days, days, Cy John, lying on his back, pushed himself over the sharp rocks with his good right leg, a few painful inches at a time. His only source of moisture was dew licked from foliage in the mornings. There were many falls down steep slopes and periods of unconsciousness and delirium. First, his clothing became shredded. Then the skin on the, back, on the back of his body became shredded until he was inching along on raw flesh. At last, he found water and pressed on, inch by agonizing inch. Forty-five days. Forty-five days after he parachuted into the forest, Cy John saw ahead the open area he had been looking for. He dragged himself over a bank and fell unconscious in the middle of the Ho Chi Minh Trail three miles from his starting point. Forty-five days, three miles, inch by inch. The young captain regained consciousness in a North Vietnamese road camp. His former athletic body, little more than a skeleton, partially covered by transparent skin. He was given some food and water, but no medical attention. In spite of his pitiful condition, his mind focused constantly on escape. When some strength returned, Cy John overpowered a guard and dragged himself up a trail only to be recaptured and punished. Cy John was moved to a temporary prison near Vin, where he was beaten severely but refused to give any military information. The guards, who had never seen a human in such ghastly condition, refused to touch him. Cy John was put in the care of Major Bob Craner and Captain Guy Gutters, or Grutters, an F-100 forward air control crew who had been shot down near Vin. The latter... Uh, Guy, Captain Guy Grutters, uh, had been in Cy John's squadron at the Air Force Academy. In his lucid moments, Cy John gave him the details of his long and painful journey. Several days later, the three were loaded on an open truck for a three-night trip to Hanoi in the chill monsoon rains. Uh, at at uh, Ho Lo Prison, they were put in a damp cell. Cy John, who had contracted pneumonia and was near death, death, asked his cellmates to prop him up on his pallet so that he could exercise his arms in preparation for escape from that grim, impregnable bastion. On January 22, 1968, Lance, uh, Captain Lance Sijon died. When the POWs were freed in early 1973, Craner and Grutters recorded the events of his long fight for freedom and his resistance to torture. Later, they were major sources of... Uh, Malcolm McConnell's book, Into the Mouth of the Cat. That's it. His, the book, Into the Mouth of the Cat. On March 4th, 1976, President Gerald Ford presented the Medal of Honor posthumously to Cy John's parents, and on Memorial Day of that year, a new dormitory at the Air Force Academy was dedicated in his memory. Cy, John, Cy John's will to survive with honor was an inspiration to other POWs during the dark days of the Vietnam War as it should be to all of us he demonstrated as few have the most uh, he demonstrated as few have the most have 
the almost unlimited capacity of the human spirit to triumph over the uh, depredations of fate and the violence of lesser men. So this is uh, our last uh, story of those who have served the United States and served very honorably. Lance Sijon could have been could have very easily simply get, given in to the punishment, given in to the, uh, the situation in which he was. He found himself, but he didn't. And there are those who, of course, who have served, many have served, whose names are unknown to us, and that's why we uh, still stop and remember them. We don't uh, just remember those whose names have floated up in history, but there are millions who have served this nation and provided the freedom which we enjoy today. And we must remember them. We must take time on Memorial Day, excuse me, Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Uh, Veterans Day being, we can say thank you to those who are still serving and those who have served. Uh, but what, we must take the time to remember them. They have given so much. We can certainly give just a few minutes of our time. In closing, I would like to read uh, a prayer that I've read once or twice before but I find extremely rewarding, extremely pertinent, and that is the Special Forces Prayer. Almighty God, who art the author of liberty and the champion of the oppressed, hear our prayer. We, the men of Special Forces, acknowledge our dependence upon Thee in the preservation of human freedom. Go with us as we seek to defend the defenseless and to free the enslaved. May we ever remember that our nation, whose motto is, In God we trust, expects that we shall acquit ourselves with honor, that we may never bring shame upon our faith, our families, or our fellow men. Grant us wisdom from thy mind, courage from thine heart, strength from thine arm, and protection from thine hand. It is for thee that we do battle, and do and to thee Bring the victor's crown. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me just pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for those who have gone before us, who have provided us the freedom that we enjoy this morning and today. And we pray we will continue to enjoy for many more years. We're thankful for their service. We're thankful for their sacrifice. And also, Father, we're thankful for the sacrifice of those families, of, of those who have served, because we know that it is very difficult for them. But we pray, Father, that they understand, that they understand that those who have served, whether giving their lives or causing uh, hardship to those around them uh, in their families, were serving for a cause that was bigger than themselves. And we're thankful, Father, for this special forces prayer that says it is for thee that we do battle. It is for thee and to thee belongs the victor's crown. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.